holy is the Lord.
thank you, O oh God, that the earth is filled with your glory, Jesus. May we rise up and praise you and give you honor this day. Fill this place with the house of praise, O oh God. As the Bible says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Fill this place with your presence this day. Be with our pastor as he brings your word. May his, your words be his words this day, Father. Bless us, we ask, in the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you. Hey, you guys can go ahead and grab a seat. Um, as you are sitting down, I want to just draw your attention to a couple of things. One that we've been talking a lot about is our life groups, because this is the season when life groups are kind of rebooting after the summer. Our kids are in school. We have children's ministry. We have our youth group that's going. And then we recognize we, need, we were created for community. And the best way we do community at Lighthouse Church is not on Sunday mornings. The best way we do community here at Lighthouse Church is throughout the week in people's homes or here on the church campus in life groups, which are really just kind of small communities of, of Christ followers who are all saying, hey, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be discipled to him, but I don't want to do it alone. I want to be able to process what's going on in my heart, what, what he's been kind of revealing to me in my own study, maybe stuff that has been stirred up from the weekend message, and I want to do so with a couple of other people. And so if you are not currently in a life group, you're missing the best of what Lighthouse has to offer, and I would encourage you to grab the connection card that's in the seat back in front of you and let us know that you're available and what nights you're available, and we will make an effort to get you plugged in. But... I want to draw your attention to one very specific thing that we are going to start this week, and that is on Wednesday nights, the majority of our life groups, not all of them, there's a bunch that go happen on Monday and Tuesday, but on Wednesday nights, we have not only a bunch of life groups going on, but we have a, a children's life group for kids that are about kindergarten through um, fifth grade, a, a life group for that, and then we also have a... a, a children's uh, room for kids who are even younger, who are a little bit too young to be part of that conversation. And we also have our junior high and our high school youth ministries that start on Wednesdays. So we just decided, let's make Wednesday night family night. But one of the biggest impediments for families to be able to get there on time, I know because I have a group of all like 30s and 40-somethings with children, one of the most difficult impediments is actually getting the family fed and out the door. So we've just decided, let's remove the hurdle. So we are going to start serving food over in the family room across the street where our kids are gathered right now from 6 to 7 every, every Wednesday night. And this is not just for families with children. This is for our church family. This is an opportunity for you if you are in a life group, if you're going to youth group, if you're going to drop your kids off at youth group but you want to hang out and see some people. If you're in a life group that meets on a Monday or a Tuesday but you're free on Wednesday, just come and grab a hamburger come, or whatever is being served that Bill's going to be cooking. We know he's really a good cook. He's a much better cook than me. So it's going to be better than if I were cooking for you. Um, and so that's on Wednesdays from 6 to 7, come at any point. My life group, for instance, starts at 6.30, so we'll be coming towards the beginning half of that, and then we'll ditch out, drop our kids off. My son will probably hang out in there for a little longer, and then he'll head upstairs to be with the youth group. If your group starts at 7, then maybe you, you mosey in a little bit later. Or maybe you come right at 6 and you hang out, whatever it is. This is just an opportunity for us to continue to find space to be family together. So I hope that you guys will take advantage of that. I'm excited for it, and I'm really grateful, Bill, for your help in that. All right, with that, go ahead and turn with me 
to John chapter 17. I got a lot to talk about in a very short amount of time to do so. John chapter 17, over the last month, month and a half, we have been slowly working through the final couple hours that Jesus spends with his disciples. And I've been thinking, like, a lot of times we just say, well, this was what was going on, but we don't fully understand the gravity of that. And so I remembered uh, Michelle Tizon last month sent both her son off to college in another state and her daughter off to Korea to teach English. This is her youngest son and her youngest daughter, and she had to drive each of them either to the airport or, or just trust as Tim drove his car to Arizona, which I remember that night we were texting with her the whole way, like, okay, he made it this far. He's only been pulled over once. He didn't get a ticket. Like, so, so just, and I remember, I can only imagine first the gravity that those final conversations that she might have with Tim or Jessica over a meal as they were together. I mean, she'd had countless meals with her kids, lots of conversations. She'd, she'd raised them into adulthood. But now suddenly those conversations take on a different weight because you know her time with them is short and she's about to say goodbye to them. And although they're going to do really good things and this is a natural part of their growth, she's not going with them. And so all of a sudden she wants to remind them, here are the things I want you to take with you as you go. And then, I just think about her driving Jessica to John Wayne Airport where she was going to put her on a plane so her daughter would fly to Korea and be gone for a year or two. And I can only imagine that as she gets closer and she realizes, I, have, I don't know what else to say, but all I can do now is entrust my daughter into my father's hands, because I can't go with her, but I know he goes with her, and he's already there ahead of her. And so then I bet she just started to pray for her kids. It's what we do every morning as we're sending our kids off to school. We're going to get them back in the evening, but we can't go onto the campus with them, so we're praying with them as they go, kind of entrusting them into God's hands. And that's really the heart of what Jesus is doing between chapters 14 and chapter 17. His time with his disciples is short. So he's reminding them of things he's already told them over and over and over, but he's just trying to make sure the most important things stick. And then he transitions to praying for them as he recognizes, now ultimately, Father, I need to entrust them into your hands because I'm not going to be with them to guide them and protect them. So I need to entrust them into your protection. And that's what he does in John chapter 17. The entire chapter is a single prayer that Jesus prays for himself, for his disciples, and for those who will follow in his disciples' footsteps. In other words, us. And so that's what I want us to read today. Is we are, because you, here's the thing about prayers. They're pretty intimate. A lot of times when somebody is praying, um, you almost, it, it almost feels like you want to just give them the space and not over-listen to them because it's such an intimate thing. But you can learn a lot about a person by listening to them pray. You can learn, first off, their, their posture towards God, right? You, you begin to learn what is their relationship with the Father, at least how do they perceive that relationship. Is it stilted at, like, like, like he's a He's some like divine judge and, and they're just trying to like make a case or, or is he like, do they see him like Oprah where he's like, I want this and I want that and can I have this or is it more like a father? Like, is it more like an intimate relationship that a child might have with a parent? That's the first thing that you'll begin to recognize as you listen 
to Jesus' prayer is his posture, his relationship with God. And then secondly, you begin to see people's values be exposed through what they pray for. I mean, just think for a moment about your prayers. Think about what you pray for at meals or at, at dinner or, or it's the same thing, um, or, or at night. Like when you guys pray, begin to think for a moment about what are you praying for? And in what ways do your prayers begin to unintentionally expose the values that you are carrying into your relationship with God, as well as your expectations that you have for him? We are about to read the longest recorded prayer of Jesus found anywhere in Scripture. And he's not teaching his disciples to pray here. He is praying. And we know that he was a prayer warrior. Jesus was the kind of guy that would get up early in the morning before the sun even rose and go and spend time with the Father. He was the kind of guy who would regularly pull back from good ministry to spend time with the Father in prayer. But we don't have any of those prayers recorded. But here we have an entire chapter where Jesus was praying, having a conversation with the Father, and his disciples got to listen in. And thankfully, John has recorded it for us so that we can see Jesus' relationship with the Father and the things that Jesus valued most. So now let's go ahead and dive in. John chapter 17. And just, just to kind of give us a running start, remember, this is coming right on the heels of Jesus saying, you guys need to abide with me through the enablement of the Holy Spirit because I'm telling you, persecution is coming. They, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And you guys are about to grieve while the world celebrates because he knows what's coming. He knows the cross is coming. You guys are going to grieve, but your grief will turn to joy when you see me again. And I want to warn you guys so that you're not surprised by this. In this world, you will have trouble. Just because you're following me doesn't insulate you from that. But you can take heart in the fact that I have overcome the world. And and he he was pointing to the cross and saying, because of what I'm about to do on the cross... The brokenness of this world doesn't get the last word. And we spent a long time last week talking about that, so I'm not going to dive back into it. But that is kind of the last thing he does before he starts praying. And so we read now in chapter 17, after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, or or in Aramaic, Abba. This is the most intimate name of God found anywhere in Scripture. And Jesus regularly, when he prayed, his, the way he would approach the Father is as his Abba. So Abba, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son might glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those that you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. I have have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. This is where he starts praying for his disciples that are with him. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world right now, but for those you have given me, for they're yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they're still in the world. 
and I'm coming to you. So holy Abba, Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them, and I kept them safe by that name that you gave me. No one has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Here he's talking about Judas Iscariot. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they might have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they're not of this world any more than I am of this world. My prayer is not that you take them out of this world. Boy, wouldn't that have been nice. My prayer isn't that you take them out of this world, but that you protect me, protect them from the evil one. They're not of this world, even as I am not of it. So sanctify them by the truth. And the word sanctify, uh, an easier translation would be set them apart. Set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. And you have, as you have sent me into this world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I set myself apart, that they may, too may be truly set apart. My prayer is not for them alone. And now he turns his attention, his prayer towards us. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they might be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them. And I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself might be in them. And then Jesus does something very unlike how we end prayers and that he just ends his prayer rather than saying in Jesus' name because he is Jesus. So he doesn't have to say that. We do that. Anyway. Um, So we are going to to dig into this prayer. And again, I want to remind us, I want to remind us that Jesus is not trying to teach in this prayer. Jesus is simply praying, but, the, but listening to it, and as we begin to unpack this, we will begin, begin to see what values drove Jesus' heart. And so as he begins in his prayer for himself, let's go ahead and read the first couple of verses here. He begins with Father, Abba, again, a, a term of intimacy. There's a familiarity in his prayer. The God is not some like distant, you know, landlord that has just kind of stepped back and let, let the world run without any sort of interaction. He is his intimate father. He's his Abba. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son might glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. And in case we forget, and we've talked about this earlier in in the Gospel of John, in case we forget, eternal life does not just mean living forever. Eternal life 
is about a connection with the Father. You and I were created in God's image to have relationship with him, to do life with him. He made us, gave, even gave us free will so that we could actually choose to have relationship because I can't have a relationship with a computer. It's programmed to do what I say. But I can have a relationship with my kids because they can darn well choose not to obey. And yet they can also choose to have relationship with me. And so that their relationship means something, whereas a computer's relationship is simply programming. And so eternal life is not simply living forever. Eternal life is a connection with a relationship with the Father that you and I were made for. But here's the problem. Since the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, that connection with the Father has been severed because of sin. Sin drove a wedge between the God and his image bearers. And Jesus came specifically to restore that connection back. And so he says in verse 3, now this is eternal life. Not that they'll live forever. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. That we would be restored back into relationship. And that is what Jesus came to do. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So there's this word that just keeps coming up in Jesus' prayer here so far. It's the word glory. And the word glory simply means to make one, to, to, to elevate one's name, to make one Great, and I, I looked it up on Webster's this morning, and it says the majority of the time, it's to kind of blow smoke. It's, it's to make it better than it really is. And I would say that anytime we're trying to glorify somebody on earth, that's probably true. We're trying to overstate it. But when it comes to the Father, when it comes to God, how do you overstate the, the creator and sustainer of everything? I mean, quite honestly, all glory belongs to him, not to any other created thing. And we, as we've been singing, the earth is full of his glory. Even if we weren't singing it, even if we didn't believe it, the stars or, or, or the sunsets we've had over the last couple of days, or just watching a baby and the intricacy of their body and the ways that their, their eyes work, watching the way that our bodies heal, all of these things bring glory to God. But it's interesting that Jesus begins his prayer by saying, Father, the hour has come, so glorify your son so that your son might glorify you. And at first blush, we might think that what Jesus is saying is probably what many, many of us who, who, who yearn for glory might think. Like, take somebody who was nominated for an Oscar, right? God, if I win that Oscar... I'm going to give you all the glory. I'm going to give you credit. Or, or, or maybe it's a, a, a football player who says, God, if you get me in, onto a team in the NFL, if we win the, the Super Bowl, I'll give you all the glory. And we could at first blush think that that's what Jesus is praying. Elevate me to a position. Like maybe elevate me to the throne of Israel. Kick Herod out. Put me on the throne. And I will point everybody towards you and say, God is good. But that's not what he's praying because that's not what he has in mind. He knows very well that the way he's going to be glorifying the Father is by going to the cross and bleeding out for us to restore us back into relationship with God. 
So his idea of the Father glorifying him looks very different from how the disciples probably anticipated him being glorified. And it also shows, Jesus was also, by the way, looking beyond the cross. He was looking beyond the cross to Easter when God would raise him from the dead, showing once and for all that Jesus was who he claimed to be and did what he claimed to do, namely breaking the back of sin and death so that we could be restored back into relationship with the Father, showing that he really truly had come from the Father. So Jesus was looking beyond the cross to his resurrection and, and even his ascension back into heaven. But ultimately, this is what he's saying in his prayer. Father, help me to complete the work that you have given me to do. Help me to walk to the cross and, and restore your image bearers back into relationship through my sacrifice so that you get the glory. Help me radiate your heart into this world. Help me do what it is you want to do. Make me a conduit of that. Does this make sense? Are you following me so far? Because this is really foundational to the rest of his prayer. So after praying that for himself, and it's not God protect me from pain, but rather, Father, don't let this pain be without a purpose. Father, give me the courage to face this pain knowing that there's a reason for it and knowing that ultimately you get the glory and that the grave won't get the last word. He then turns his eyes to his disciples and he prays, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of this world. And that word revealed, another way that we could translate the Greek there is I have manifested your name. I have revealed your name. And just, just so we understand, a person's name for us, is just the way that we know that person, right? It's the moniker we go by and so that we can differentiate that person from another person. But a person's name to a, to a Jewish person growing up in the Middle East, a person's name was the sum total of that person's character. It and there's a reason why they would change somebody's name during a significant period of their life because they were basically saying, hey, you, you were born known in this way, but we want to remember you this way, so this is how you will now be known. Peter, I'm going to, you know, your name has been Cephas, but now I'm going to call you Peter, Rocky, and upon this rock I will build my church, that kind of thing, right? So, a person's name revealed the sum total of their character, and, and Jesus says, I have revealed you or manifested your name to those whom you gave me out of this world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them, they believed me. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world but for those you have given to me. And that's not because he doesn't care for the world. We know from John 3.16 that God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to die for everyone, not just for a few. But in this moment, Jesus is well aware of the fact that the world is pushing back. And the reason he's about to go to the cross is because of how the world is resistant to the inbreaking of the gospel is resistant to the way that Jesus has been radiating the light of God's values and exposing the broken misunderstanding of the way that the, the Jewish power brokers had understood God up to that point. 
And he knows that as he goes to the cross, his disciples are about to start experiencing persecution on levels they've never experienced before. Lost my page. And so he says, you, uh, uh, where was I? I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me in this moment, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and, the glo- and glory has come to me through them, through just the way that they follow me, through the way that they have been learning from me and trying to live out the values I've been modeling for them. I will remain in this world no longer, but they are still in this world, and I'm coming to you. So, holy Abba, Father, protect them by the power of your name. Again, it's not just the name of God that is powerful. It is the character of God that is revealed through his name. Protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they might be one as we are one. Now, just really, really briefly, really brief sidebar here. The first time that Moses was introduced to God in the form of a burning bush, and and, and God says to Moses, you are going to be my ambassador to Pharaoh, and through you, you're going to go tell him to let my people go. One of the very first things Moses did, right after he said, oh no, not me, I'm not qualified for this, Um, the very next thing he did is, is ask this burning bush, who are you? that I should be able to go and tell this to Pharaoh and he should listen? What name should I give him? Because I'm certainly not going to say Moses says. I got no authority. And what does God say? He says, I am that I am. In other words, there's no way to put a box around me and define me. I am that I am. So you can tell Pharaoh that I am sent you. And that word I am is in Hebrew is pronounced Yahweh. And when we bring it into English, it's translated Jehovah. So if you've ever heard that term Jehovah or Yahweh, that is simply our attempt to articulate the name of God, I am. And when you're reading your Bibles in the Old Testament, a lot of translations won't use Yahweh or Jehovah. They'll use Lord in all capital letters. It's saying the same thing. And here's the interesting thing. When Jesus began to do his public ministry, as we have recorded in John, over and over and over, he will reference the I am of God when he's describing himself. I am the bread of life. I am living waters. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Oh, and by the way, before Moses was, I am. Jesus absolutely was pointing to himself and saying, I am the physical embodiment of the invisible God. And if you have seen me, then you have seen the Father. And so here, he's, again, he's not trying to teach his disciples theology. He's just praying. So this is theology in action. And so in his prayer, he says, Holy Father, Holy Abba, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they might be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them, and I kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None of them has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. And again, here he's referencing Judas Iscariot, who was the one who had just sold Jesus out. He just left dinner. We forget because it was like a month ago that we talked about that, but it's just happened. Verse 13. I'm coming to you now, 
But I say these things while I'm still in this world so that they might have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of this world any more than I am of this world. Jesus recognizes, and I think this is an important reminder for each of us who called Jesus Lord, that although we reside in the nation of America, we are not primarily American citizens any more than his disciples were from Jewish descent, but they were not primarily Jewish citizens. Their citizenship had altered. When they said yes to Jesus, they became citizens of the kingdom of God. And their new identity was wrapped up in what does the Father want as opposed to what does the world want. They became representatives of that. And so Jesus will say twice in his prayer, they are not of this world any more than I am of this world. My prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one because Jesus recognizes that they now reside in enemy-occupied territory. They're citizens of one kingdom, the kingdom of God, residing in another kingdom where a different set of values completely hold sway. And so he says again in verse 16, they are not of this world even as I am not of it. And anytime you see something repeated, you should pay attention to it because it's really important. Jesus acknowledges that his disciples, though Jewish, are not primarily of the nation of the Jews. They are now citizens of the kingdom of God. Although they live under the heavy hand of Rome, they are not Roman citizens. Though they have to abide by Roman law, they are citizens of the kingdom of God, ambassadors representing the values of their king just as Jesus has lived as an ambassador representing his father's heart to the world. Again, I lost my page. So my prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world even as I am not of it. So sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And that word sanctify, again, means to be set apart. Set them apart by your word of truth. When we started John almost a year ago, the very first words that we heard was, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And that word is Jesus Christ who took on human flesh. So he's first saying, I'm the word. I've been showing them how to live. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But he also recognizes that in his absence, we have this word that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but penned by human hands that helps us remember who Jesus is. But thirdly, we also have the Holy Spirit, whom he calls just a, a couple of verses earlier, the spirit of truth that will remind them of everything that Jesus taught them. So you have this multi-layered truth-telling that continues to remind the disciples and all those that will come after, including ourselves, how we are to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, living in enemy-occupied territory so that our lives will be set apart because the purpose of them staying, the reason he doesn't say, God, bring them to be with me, take them out of here, is because we have a job to do. Not only in Christ do we find ourselves with a new citizenship, or a new identity as children of God, but we also find ourselves with a renewed purpose, namely, 
that we would be ambassadors of the values of God, the ambassadors of our king living in a world that lives contrary to him. And I know you guys are tired of this illustration if you've been part of this church for any length of time. But I don't care because I never get tired of it. Because some pastors have many props. This pastor has one prop, and this is my prop, okay? We talk about being citizens of the kingdom of God. We talk about being branches that bear fruit. I like to talk, since we're lighthouse, I like to kind of use that metaphor and say, well, we are all designed by God, called by God to be light bulbs that bear light in the darkness. And so this represents you and this represents me. We were created by our Father God to do life with Him, abide in Him, and out of that to bear light in the darkness. And so what happens with a light bulb? By itself, apart from any sort of a, a, an empowering source, all it is is a glorified paperweight. But if you take that bulb and you place it into, this is probably one of the most important parts of the entire light bulb, although we never see it once it's where it's supposed to be. This little metal part, this is the part that connects to the power source. This is the abiding that we talked about in John chapter 15. Apart from me, you cannot bear light. But if you abide in me and I in you, if we are one and we remain connected, then guess what happens? Light is produced or fruit is produced. And it's not produced because of our power, it's produced because of the power that comes from the vine into the branch or comes from the, the, the base into the bulb. Jesus came into the world to be the light. And in his preparing to go, he has reminded his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill, don't hide your light. Let it shine before men that although they accuse you of being small-minded, maybe using me as a crutch, they will see your good deeds. And ultimately, they'll come to call me Lord on the day when I return. This is what you and I were created to do, is to bear light in the darkness. He's praying that for his disciples. Sanctify them, set them apart. As you have sent me into the world, now I'm sending them into the world for them, I'm about to go sanctify myself or set myself apart on the cross so that they too might truly be set apart in connection with you. And now he turns his eyes to you and to me and to every other man, woman, and child who will ultimately find faith through their testimony. And he prays, my prayer is not only for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world might believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave to me, that they might be one as we are one, that we might be light bearers as well, that they might be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they might be brought to complete unity and then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as I, you have loved me. Now, I'm going to pause for a second because I'm going to suggest right now that verses 22 and 23 of this prayer sum up the whole heart of Jesus' prayer. It's kind of like the thesis statement of his prayer. 
Because we have in those two verses all of the information we need to get to the heart of what Jesus is asking the Father for. So let's go back to it. Let's read this again. I have given them, he's talking about us, the glory that you gave to me. The Holy Spirit of God that empowers us. That is the glory that the Father has given to us. I've given them the glory that you've given to me that they might be one as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they might be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. There are two words, two very key important words in those two verses that I want to drill down into. Because they sum up the whole heart of what Jesus is talking about. And if we can get these two words and see how they connect, then we will understand everything here. The first word is glory or glorification. It's a word that Jesus has said over and over and over. He has on his mind that God be glorified. The purpose of light is to shine in the darkness and to drive the darkness back so that people who are stumbling in the darkness might find their way to safety. What is the purpose of a lighthouse? To shine in the darkness, in the midst of a storm. You don't need a lighthouse during the day when the sun is shining. You need a lighthouse in the darkness when even the moon isn't shining. You need a lighthouse in the midst of a storm when the wind and the waves are crashing and you don't know what's just a wave or what is rocks and will dash your life. That's when you need a lighthouse to point you in the direction. And that is the whole purpose that Jesus came to be, to be a beacon of hope, pointing people back to the Father. And then he looks at his disciples and he says, in the same way that I have lived my entire life glorifying the Father through my obedience to him and doing what he has called me to do so that the world will be restored back into relationship with him. He now points to his disciples and says, now you guys are going to go keep doing what I've been doing through the enablement of the Holy Spirit that I am going to send to you. You're not going to do this by yourself. You couldn't possibly do this by yourself in the same way that this bulb could never possibly bear light by itself. And then he says to his disciples, I'm also praying for those who are going to come to faith in you through your testimony. And this is where we're included in this prayer. I have given them the glory, Father, that you gave me. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. So that, and this brings us to the second word, so that they might be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they might be brought to complete unity. The second word that we need to drill into is this oneness or unity. I often talk about this light bulb as if it represents each of us individually, because guess what? I'm an American in the 21st century, and we think of ourselves as individuals, don't we? When we define ourselves, yeah, Ethan bears my name. He's a Wayman, just like I'm a Wayman. But he's different from me. He's got a different name than me. And a lot of times when we do try to kind of present ourselves to the world, we, we often like to tell where we started from to show how far we've come. So we think of ourselves as individuals, but that is not how the Jewish mind thought. They thought of themselves as part of a much larger whole. And so really, if we are faithful 
to the thinking of Jesus and to the thinking of the Bible, we should look at this light bulb as this represents every man, woman, and child that calls Jesus Lord. Together, we produce light. And that's the second part of the light bulb that I love. This particular light bulb, and this is why this is my favorite illustration. Because not only do you have the metal part that has to sit down in there and abide so that we get the, the energy to shine, but you have this filament, and this is a particularly glorious filament, because this filament represents the life together that you and I were created to have. It is not good for us to be alone. We were not created to try to navigate through life on our own. And quite honestly, it is through life together, being in connection with one another, encouraging one another, bearing with one another, being patient with one another, helping one another in times of need, that we honestly shine the brightest. And it is through our unity that we radiate the hope and the heart of God into our sin-darkened world. We can't do it on our own. In fact, almost sounding like a broken record, Jesus has made this same point so many times that if he, you know, it's like my kids going, yeah, Dad, we've heard that a hundred times. We don't need to hear it again. The world will know you are my disciples. How? By the way you love one another. As I have loved you, so you love one another. Greater love, there's no greater love than this, than somebody who will lay down their life for a friend. And now, may you guys be unified as a testimony to the world that you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is the heart of our Father, that our unity would ultimately help us glorify Him. In fact, according to Jesus' prayer, it seems that our unity is one of the most important aspects of our testimony to the world. And herein is where I think we run into a pretty big issue. Because if we were to remove ourselves from the power source, we can't do what we were created to do, right? We were created to bear light. And if we remove ourselves from the power source, we can't possibly bear light. Because the power is in him, not in us. We desperately are dependent upon the Father. But we also need to be connected with one another. And if we don't have the life together, or if we begin to approach one another from our divisions, as opposed to the things that unify us, then we are in desperate trouble. Because the moment this filament breaks, how many, we're not talking like these old school bulbs that we have. What do you do when the filament breaks on one of these bulbs? Why? It doesn't work any longer if the filament breaks. If the filament were to break on this, five years I've had this thing, it's never broken on me. Thank you, Jesus. I, I don't want to, we don't care about jinxing here, but I don't, I don't want to do that, right? Like, I love this thing. The filament is incredibly important because it's also fragile. And we live in a day and an age where the filament is perhaps the most under attack part of the church. We live in a day and an age where we are told how we should live. And we, 
and there, there are all of these fault lines that are running through our society. They've been running through our society from the, the beginning of time. Anytime there's people around, you have two people, you're going to have three disagreements kind of thing, right? Like everybody has differences of opinion. Everybody has different perspectives. And there's all these fault lines that have been in existence. Politics and political parties, those have been around for as long as any of us have been alive. Nations. And how we should interact with one of those have been around for a really long time. Differences of, of skin color and differences of, of approaches to life and different genders and all these kind of things, those have been around. And, and power struggles in them, those have been around all the way since Genesis chapter 3. And then we have new ones, new ones like COVID that has thrown us a curveball because it's a brand new fault line running through our society. And it's, quite honestly, it has is, is produced a whole stinking lot of fear, a tremendous amount of fear. I know you guys are really nervous that I'm holding this right now. <laughs> I'll, I'll hold it tightly, but I just love this bolt. The last couple of years, I have watched as fear has grown stronger and stronger and stronger. And let's be honest, it's because whenever you start making a daily tally of how many people got sick and how many people have been hospitalized and how many people have died, it's going to produce fear. If we did the same thing with how many people were in car accidents and how many people died in car accidents, we'd be terrified of getting in our car. Fear has been running our lives. Fear has been driving us sometimes to drink, sometimes to anything that we can find to give us some semblance of control. One of the things that this has driven us to do is to say we need to get the right person into positions of power so they can make decisions about how we're going to respond. And for most of last year, I watched a ton of my family in this church and a ton of my family outside of this church fixated on a single day, on election day, fixated on what would happen, and then in the aftermath, fixated on what was going to happen because we thought if we can just get the right person into office, we will have some semblance of control. As if we can legislate morality. Yeah, let me tell you how often that's worked out in history. Some of the worst atrocities committed in the name of Jesus have happened with well-meaning people trying to legislate morality. The church is called to be a light, not a scepter to beat people over the head. But we're terrified. One of the other things, I mean, we have this vaccine. And guys, I know this is a fault line that runs right through the heart of our own church, let alone our society. I know that there are people in this church who feel incredibly strongly on both sides of this conversation. Some of you are so unbelievably grateful that the vaccine is available. And you're like, why the heck? But you don't use heck. Why on earth wouldn't they ever take it? This is stupid. Just protect other people. Protect yourself. And then there's others on the other side of the conversation because fault lines tend to divide people, not bring people together. Fault lines run right through the middle ground. 
And on the other side, there are many of us in this room who might respond by saying, yeah, but you know what, I'm actually more concerned with what feels like the, the mandating of something rather than giving somebody the permission to make a choice for themselves. I thought that that's what our, our, our society was founded upon. So although it, it might be good, I'm really uncomfortable with the way it's being presented. It feels very politicized. And so I don't want to touch it because quite honestly, I'm more concerned with the vaccine and the way it's being rolled out than I am with COVID at at all. And I would anticipate that in some ways, and I hope I've honored both perspectives, I find in myself, I tend to be one of those guys who constantly wants to be in the middle, constantly trying to pull people back together, and I'm able to see both sides of the perspective. If I didn't articulate your side, just know I'm trying. But again, we're scared. So some of us are running to a vaccine, and some of us are running to, oh, no, 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 the Constitution. And then we go, well, you know how I can fix this is, is social media. I got people around me. I can tell them what they should do. And we start yelling via social media. We start yelling at people on the other side. You're an idiot for not thinking like me. And the light, the beacon of hope that we have been called to be rather than simply standing in the midst of the wind and the storm and keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus so we can radiate light together in love with people who might disagree about, with a, about a lot of things, rather than standing as unified together, we start acting like we're hammers trying to... That was a little bit more exciting than I anticipated. Well, all right. It's a good thing we covered up the, the communion elements today. That's all I got to say. Wow. I couldn't practice that one ahead of time, so I didn't. We have tried to turn the church, we have tried to turn our voices into a cudgel, beating people into submission. And in the process, I mean, I, I love this light. I, this light has been with me for a very long time. I love this light. I'm fine. Am I bleeding? Oh, good. I love this light, and I am sad to see it gone. But this is just a light bulb. This means nothing. Can you imagine how our Father feels when he looks down upon us, his light, his bride, his church, and, and those who are to be a beacon of hope in this world are so divided, are so angry, are so scared that we are doing anything we can to try to force other people to see it from our perspective. And when they don't, we start talking with contempt towards them and we act no differently from the rest of the world. Guys, here's, here's the pain that I carry. Not glass shards in my face, the pain that I carry is the knowledge that there are people that I call family who don't feel comfortable to sit in here because they've had conversations with others or they watched online conversations from other people that they respected that seem more focused on camping out on one or the other side of one of these fault lines than they do about loving one another. And in the process... I got it on the other side too. And in the process, 
Our light has dimmed. Our ability to actually see other people and love them for who they are and where they are has dimmed. I have great hope for the church. But this is a hard season in our society. And the irony is as Jesus prays, I think this is going to be like the new glitter. Like I'm going to be finding pieces of my light bulb for a very, very long time. As Jesus prays this, I've given them the glory that you gave me that they might be one as we are one, that we might be unified, I and them and you and me, so that they might be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Guys, we need to stop focusing on the things that divide us and start focusing on the one thing that unites us. Because I can assure you, there is not a single person in this room, not a single one of you, that agrees with every perspective that I carry in my heart. Not even my wife, especially my wife. (laughs) And if we were to take all of the things that we think about life and how life should be lived and the things that we're concerned about and the things that we hope for and all of those things and we were going to create the biggest Venn diagram you've ever seen. Remember, that's where you have circles that overlap one another. I have to be careful every time I take a step right now because it doesn't matter. Walking on broken glass. Um, Our Venn diagrams are all over the place, everywhere, but there is one and only one common overlapping space where I would hope all of us can agree, and that is this. Jesus is Lord. That's it. You might have voted differently than many other people in this church. You might have a different perspective on the vaccine or on social distancing or on face masks or on any other, on baseball, on whether it's even a sport, or, 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 or on, on country music. No, I mean, I, let's not really call out all of our stuff here right now. But you might have many, many different perspectives. You might not agree with a lot. And I know, and this is the part that grieves me, I know there are members of our church family who have decided that because, not because of what has been spoken from the stage, but because of conversations that they have had in the foyer or, or conversations that they have watched play out over social media, they've said, yeah, no thanks. This is no longer a place that I want to do life with other people because I disagree with them. I go, yeah, duh, of course we disagree. But that doesn't mean that we part company. The reality is that the family of God, the church, has been dividing like this, sometimes incredibly violently, from the very beginning. We've divided over stupid things like worship style, (laughs) as if worship was about us. We divided over theological quibbles, like whether baptism is 
sprinkling or by immersion, whether it should happen when you're very young or when you're old enough to decide for yourself. Like We have divided over the most ridiculous things that are not about salvation. We've divided over whether or not we feel like the Holy Spirit should have a lot of sway in our conversations. Oh, man, we've divided and divided and divided. And guess what? We're dividing again as a society. What we need more than anything right now is not to try to argue somebody to agree with us. And let's be honest, I don't think that, I've I've tried, I, I sometimes speak to myself a lot up here, so just bear with me. I have tried so hard to be a voice of reason on social media, and can I just tell you that I don't think I've convinced or changed a single person's mind. Because at the end of the day, when you try to have conversations with other Christ followers on social media, that's like trying to have a personal family conversation over the intercom at your supermarket. Everybody can hear you, and honestly, I think you should stop being a jerk to your brother, Ethan. That's really rude. And it's like, you know what? When you do that at the supermarket, first, that's an inappropriate place to have that conversation, and secondly, you're inviting a bunch of trolls to, to speak into a conversation that it, they don't belong in. If you're trying to change people's mind over social media, may I simply exhort you, have a personal conversation, and when you have that personal conversation, my guess is your tone and posture will be a little different than you might take if you get into an online argument. Secondly, I hope, I hope, I hope you approach it with humility, gentleness, and above all things, love. Because while you might disagree about this point, you are citizens of the kingdom of God who are called to be family. And we might act dysfunctionally. We might not appreciate certain things. And sometimes the pastor might sweat a lot. And they don't like that. And, 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 and he might mess up the church a little bit with glass confetti. But they will know us by the way we love. Our unity matters more than you could ever possibly fathom. And so this morning... There's going to be several ways that we're going to respond. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. The first way we're going to respond is I'm just going to pray. And guess what, guys? I'm going to talk to God in this one. You're going to get a little bit of a picture of your pastor's heart right now. Because you're going to learn a lot about the values by somebody praying. So let me just pray for us. Abba, Father, I love you. (laughs) Thank you that you use imperfect people uh, to get to represent you, even... You, you know how much you love your church. I thank you that you invite us to be part of your church. I thank you that when it comes to it, we get to represent your heart to this world, and we know we haven't done it perfectly. But Father, I invite you first to start with my heart. Search me and know me. Is there anything in me that has been contrary to you, that, is, that has been out of focus or that's been putting the focus on me? Is there any ways that I have not been honoring you? If so, help me to see it. Because I want to reflect or radiate your light in the darkness. Father, I thank you for this church family. I'm grateful to call Lighthouse home, and I know that we are just one part of a much larger community. There's only one church on this planet. You're the head of all of us. Rather than the 45,000 denominations that we've turned it into and all the division that we've been doing since the beginning of time. 
Help yourself to us. Unify us. Show us, Father, what matters most to you. And in the areas where we disagree, may we not approach one another with anger. May we not be driven by fear. And when we can't convince somebody to agree with us, may we not respond with contempt, but with love. Father, for those who, who are walking in the darkness right now, those all around our church building that this morning have just chosen to watch golf or football or just to sleep in, because honestly, this feels empty to them. They don't see the value of you. They don't, that you're not relevant in their life. May we be like a light bulb burning brightly in the darkness, not just on this street corner, but in each of our spheres of influence. May we radiate the hope that we found in you so that they will, not so that they'll come here and we can fill up every seat and have to do multiple services. I don't care about that. I pray that they would just find you and they would call you Lord and we would get to spend eternity worshiping together. So help yourself to us, we pray. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. The second way we're going to respond took on a whole new level of excitement because you get to walk into Shrapnelville. Um, we are going to take communion and thankfully we covered up the bread and the juice so there is no glass shards in there. If you're not wearing shoes, probably go to the back, okay? Um, we're going to take communion as a family because there is no greater reminder to us about what it means to be a family unified than the reminder of communion. Because of Jesus and his willingness to sacrifice for us, we are family. And I just want to remind you of one little thing that I, I've been reminded of a number of times. When Jesus took communion the very first time, his disciples may have all come from a Jewish background, but that was pretty much where their overlap ended. You've got a zealot. Zealots were the kind of people who thought the best way forward was to go, it, it, we don't like Rome, let's go shank them in the back with a shiv. Okay? So that's what a zealot was. We need to go fight for our nation sitting down and having a meal with a tax collector at the same table. If a zealot and a tax collector could be united as family through Jesus, so can we. So I'm going to invite you to come. There's some in the back. There's some elements in the front. Dee and Connie, why don't you come up here? Randy, Patty, why don't you come? Oh, yeah, oh, actually, yeah, why don't you come? You go back there. Okay, Rich, Joyce, you guys are up here. Thank you. Um, they're going to make sure there's no glass when they serve you. Why don't you come and get the elements? And then what I would ask is hold on to them until we can all partake of communion together as a reminder that in Christ we are family. Come and take.
having his final meal with his disciples, he took a piece of bread and he, he repurposed that bread as a symbol because like this pastor is a pastor of props, Jesus used props at times to remind us of otherwise pretty heady things. He says, guys, this bread symbolizes my body, which I'm giving freely for you. And every time you eat of it, remember what makes you family, what restores you back into relationship with the Father is me, not your effort, not your success, not where you've come from, me. So let's take this in remembrance of him.
And then he it's very dry. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup symbolizes my blood. You know how we, we say blood is thicker than water? We often think that that means family is, is thicker than whatever water is. But in reality, what this is saying is the blood of Christ is thicker than the water of our birth. We are united through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is what makes us family. So let's take this together as one family. We're going we're gonna to respond with a couple more songs, but there's one last way that we might respond out of this. I'm pretty certain that there's no hope left for my light bulb. I would love to do one of, you know how like that Jewish pottery, when, or I'm sorry, the, the Japanese pottery when it breaks and they use the gold to put it back together? Great idea, not going to happen with that. But the beauty of the family of God is that it's never too late to begin to restore relationship. And if there are ways that we have allowed our own fear or our own pride to begin to burn down bridges of relationship with people that matter to us, then I, my prayer for us this morning as we go into this time of response is that you do a very courageous thing, that you pray your own prayer, Holy Spirit, search me and know me. Know my innermost thoughts. Show me if there's any errant way in me, anything that I have done to dim my light or to sever the unity of your body. And if, if, if the Holy Spirit lays someone on your heart, please do not wait to go and re reconcile. You may even want to in this time. You, perhaps your best act of worship is to get up, walk outside, and make a phone call. Or to get up and go over next to somebody and just say, I love you. And I'm sorry for what, what's transpired. I own my stuff. You can't ever force somebody else to apologize, but you can only own your own stuff. Or maybe the hurt is so great right now. Maybe the distance is so great that right now you're just feeling hopeless. And you need to ask somebody else to help carry the weight of that prayer with you. If so, I'm going to have my elder couples head to the back to be available to pray. Let's go into a time of response. But may we not simply worship with songs. May we not simply worship with words. May we worship through responding, even if that means owning our own mistakes. Let's continue to respond. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross the emblem of suffering and shame and I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was laid so I'll change 
stand up again. Um, I know that we had other songs planned, but there's a song that I feel like I just, would you stand up for a moment? There's a song that I learned as a very wee lad uh, called This Little Light is Mine, right? We, most of us know it. If you've ever spent any time in the church as a kid, you learned it. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. You always put, hide it under a bush. I want to repackage it slightly. Because we often have our own little finger up as if it's our own little light. But let's remind ourselves, our light shines brightest in community. So here's what I would ask you to do. If you are okay with it, would you saddle up next to, sidle up, I'm not sure which one is the right word. It doesn't really matter. You understand what I'm saying. Get close to the people around you. And if there's nobody around you, then go find some people. Get up close to them. Put your arm around them. And we're going to sing this little light of mine, remembering this is the light. It's our life together that shines brightest. So, somebody who knows all the words, lead us off. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine.
fact that you took it country. And let me just say that God was glorified in that. Yeah. I also love the fact that you tried to get them to clap and their hands were tied up, which is just fine. Yeah. I am so unbelievably grateful to get to call you family. I am so grateful to be on this adventure called following Jesus with you. I'm grateful that together we get to be the light that our neighbors need to see. And the light does not simply shine in here. In fact, the light was never intended to stay in the light bulb. The light was intended to go into the darkness so that others might find Christ and find the hope that we have found in him. So, if you've got prayer requests, you can drop them in the bucket. If you have any, anything that you want to let us know about or you have offering, you can drop in the buckets. Lighthouse Community Church, go be the light. And I hope to see you on Wednesday for dinner at 6 p.m. Have a great week!